Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Episode 46! This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas, and today I'll be taking a look at Hellraiser 2022, as well as Halloween Ends, and I'll also be taking a look at some of... uh, So my list of recommendations of spooky movies to be watching during October. It is currently October as of this recording. So let's jump right into Hellraiser 2022. Directed by David Bruckner. And um, Hellraiser is from the people who brought us Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, Blade Trinity, and Nighthouse. So, the basically the story goes like this. I'll give you just a kind of a a description of the story, and then I'm going to go through things I liked about it and things I didn't like about it, and then I think after that I'm going to uh, take a closer examination of how this movie is actually ranked in the world of reviewing, of mainstream internet reviewing. So, we're at a eyes-wide-shut fuck party in a big old mansion, and the homeowner, rich guy and occultist pervert man uh, named Voight, uh, he lures a male underwear model into a inescapable sacrificial chamber and sacrifices him to the demons from hell called Cenobites that live in a mysterious puzzle box that, if solved, will stab you in the hand and mark you for death by the Cenobites. So, uh, giving you access to the god of hell, the Leviathan, and he will grant you a wish. So... You have to, uh, you have your, you have your little puzzle, and the puzzle needs to be solved, and uh, you need to have sacrifices as each configuration of the puzzle goes on, and then if you get through all, it's six of them. If you get through all six configurations, you get a wish, and they don't call them the devil or Satan or anything like that. They just call him you know the god of hell <laughs> which is like who could that be but um so our main character riley a uh, recovering drug addict and alcoholic she and her douche boyfriend trevor convinces uh, trevor convinces her to break into some private property and rob it for its contents for the purposes of profit that's basically what happens and after they do this. Um, well, okay. Let me explain the place they break into. It's it's like a warehouse that's abandoned, and inside the warehouse, there's a shipping container, and then within the shipping container is a safe, and inside the safe is a wooden box, and inside the wooden box is the puzzle box, referred to in the Hellraiser universe as the Lament configuration. So, um, I mean, if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume you've seen at least one Hellraiser movie or, you know, this one that I'm talking about. 
So they break into this place and it seems really easy for them to break into. First of all, <laughs> it's a little too easy, um, especially uh, breaking through a safe. Like I could see breaking into a warehouse being not that hard, breaking into a shipping container, probably not that hard, but cracking a safe and they do it just like a sledgehammer. You know what I mean? I'm just like that. That doesn't seem plausible, but they break into it. They find the puzzle box inside. So that's that's basically that. So after they do this, uh, Riley and Trevor, both of them who met in a 12-step program, by the way, uh, they both relapse, and she stumbles home, and she ends up getting kicked out of her apartment where she lives with her very gay brother, Matt, and his boyfriend, Colin. And their high-level intersectional roommate, Nora. So, Matt um, accidentally gets cut by this puzzle box because Riley brought the puzzle box home. Okay? So, he ends up getting cut by it by a, a blade that while you're playing around with the puzzle box, if you solve a certain configuration, a very sharp blade will protrude from the box and cut to the person solving it. So Matt accidentally gets cut by the box and uh, the Cenobites come and take him away. And this leads Riley on a journey to find her brother Matt and the, the key to finding him is the puzzle box itself. So Riley and Trevor, they somehow find the woman who worked for Voight, who hid the box away. Now, did she hide it away for Voight or did she hide it from Voight? I'm not 100% sure about that. But um, it, it's this woman who worked for Mr. Voight who bought the warehouse and sealed it inside of this place. Which is like not the at some point, like I mean, I get that it's private property and property and everything, but like how long does that last? Like you know what I mean? Like if nobody's maintaining the property, it seems like at some point someone's just gonna break in or the city's gonna take it or something. So like someone's gonna find that goddamn puzzle box. So Anyways, that's that's thinking way too far ahead. So they find this woman, uh, Riley and uh, Trevor. Also, I don't know how the fuck they found that this woman, like how they found that she owns this abandoned warehouse. But they think maybe she has some answers because um, Riley's like, okay, my brother disappeared because of this box. Maybe I, I actually don't understand why she thinks that really. But she's under the impression that this, like, box, if she finds the mysteries of it, she'll be able to find her brother. Which I don't get because uh, Riley was heavily intoxicated when her brother vanished. So, I, <laughs> she's just, I don't know. This is just how the story is. Okay, so, um, when they go to visit the woman who hid away the fucking the box. She's like in this medical facility. I, I'm assuming it's some type of, I don't know, hospice facility. Cause she has some sort of like degenerative, uh, lung disease of some kind that's killing her. 
probably lung cancer or something, but somehow she ends up getting cut by the box. Yeah, she gets stabbed by the box and the Cenobites come and take her away. Riley, it basically is like, okay, we need to go a step further and find, um, find Voight. Mr. Voight will probably know something, right? So they find Voight's estate and decide to go there looking for answers, even though he's presumed dead. There's a whole scene where Riley's on the internet finding out about Mr. Void, and he's got all this kind of weird controversy and stuff like that, but pretty much anyone associated with him, um, well, at least a lot of people, people who've worked for him, acquaintances of his associates, a bunch of people just disappeared, and she's convinced that they disappeared because of this box that was in Mr. Void's possession. Okay, sure. So even though the internet's like, he hasn't been seen in six years and he's presumed dead. She's like, let's go to his mansion. Anyways, not knowing if somebody bought it or is living there or if that, if (laughs) the, the, the mansion might not be there at all. It might've been torn down and made into a fucking mall. Who knows? But she's convinced that it's still there and she needs to go to the estate to look for answers. So, so Riley goes there alone and finds, um, <laughs> well, she's able to get into the house. She finds Voight's office in the house with all these notebooks explaining the, the puzzle box in, in detail, because we need to have some exposition about what the sort of mythology of the, the box, the puzzle box and how it works is. So she goes in there and there's all these notebooks explaining the six configurations uh, the box must go through to open and the portal. Um, and so, okay. The box must go through six configuration and then it'll, the a portal to hell will open. And then you get your wish from the wish master or Leviathan or the God of hell or whoever the fuck this entity is who we never really see. It's just this sort of like world otherworldly entity that they call Leviathan, which is basically this elongated, imagine a very uh, long, tall pyramid. Imagine two of them, and they're stuck at the butt end, okay? And then imagine that floating in the air. That's basically the Leviathan. It's sort of this um, diamond-shaped pyramid structure that levitates and, you know, I don't know, uh, <laughs> but it's basically the Wishmaster because, you know, once you get to the point where you have had enough people get stabbed by the box and it goes through its six configurations, uh, the box will open up the Leviathan and then the God of Hell's presence will uh, become before you and you basically get to make a wish, but it's like the Wishmaster in that whatever you wish for, like, you don't exactly get that thing. It's sort of this Faustian bargain situation where it's like, you know, you can wish for whatever you want and then you get that thing, but it's like, <laughs> it's got all these caveats that make that thing that you wanted a fucking nightmare somehow. So, so Colin, Trevor, and Nora uh, arrive shortly after Riley does at the Voight estate. And everyone conveniently splits up like it's Scooby-Doo or something. And Nora ends up getting stabbed by the box. 
uh, by Voight because he's still alive. But he's been living inside uh, the walls of his fucking mansion for six whole years. Sure, why not? And I guess he's just been ordering uh, Postmates for food and um, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Nora, Voight stabs Nora in the back with the box, right? Because it's got a big blade attached to it. And she gets stabbed in the back and it's just stuck in her back. And she ends up running into the um, the fucking sacrificial chamber inside the fucking mansion. And um, Colin runs in there with Riley and he just fucking pulls the box out of her back. Which is like, Colin sucks as a character. He's the worst fucking character. And he should have just been there to be murdered. Just to make the body count higher. But the movie refused to do that. Um, I have some theories on why that's the case, but um, I'll get into that a little bit later. So, also, if you if someone if you get stabbed in whatever the um, the implement that stabbed you, if it's long enough and it's stuck in your body, don't pull it out. Go get seek medical attention because if you pull it out, you're gonna probably bleed to death. Just just a tip, okay. Also, Nora was stabbed in the back, <laughs> so who knows? She could have punctured a lung who knows so colin just runs in and like clumsily pulls the box out of her back and and everyone's like okay we need to get the fuck out of this house so they grab nora who's bleeding out (laughs) and they uh rush her outside and put her in colin's van because everyone uh i'm sorry not colin van trevor's van because they all came there in trevor's van um well at least trevor and colin and Nora showed up. Riley showed up separately, remember? So they all leave in Trevor's van. Um, and Riley leaves her car behind v- conveniently. And that'll make sense in a second. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make sense in the overall scheme of things. But um, it's it conveniently happens in the story so that the story can be what it ended up being. <laughs> so they're rushing away from the Voigt estate, which is just surrounded by woods. So they're driving all crazy down these, like this wooded road. And of course they end up crashing the van in the woods and they can't get the fucking van out. So during this time, the Cenobites take Nora away. Um, so they're able to get her, even though she's locked in a fucking van. Uh, with, with everyone else around. Anyways. And we get the first. Full look at. Pinhead. Okay. So let me. Let me explain what happens. When you get. You get fucking stabbed by the box. The lament configuration. Okay. So. Basically what happens is you become disoriented. You become very disoriented. And you basically go into this kind of alternate reality. That's kind of like the reality you're in, but like the, the Cenobites are able to appear there and all their powers are able are fully realized. Um, so Nora basically goes into this sort of like trance. She basically goes into another dimension and she's inside this giant maze. So if you've seen Hellraiser two from way back in the day, um, where the Leviathan is in hell. It's like this giant, um, two-sided inverted floating pyramid hovering over this enormous fucking maze that goes on forever. It's like, it's like, 
It's like the movie The Labyrinth. Imagine like a fucking thousand labyrinths. <laughs> so that's basically what hell is represented in the Hellraiser world. So so the once Nordic gets into this uh, otherworldly dimension, that's when fucking the Cenobites appear. We get our first look at fucking Pinhead. Pinhead uh, fucking conjures up chains with hooks to appear out of nowhere, grabs fucking Nora, and then uh, fucking Nora's dead. So... And and also they the really the a full look at Pinhead standing on camera delivering lines happens over an hour into the movie. So uh, Pinhead's not in this movie a whole bunch. <laughs> Just so you know. I mean Pinhead wasn't really that much in the first movie either, but but it still made a hell of an impression. Doug Bradley's performance as the original Pinhead was um, and for all the nerds out there, uh, Pinhead wasn't referred to as Pinhead in the first movie. He was referred to as the lead Cenobite. So, um, but if you want to compare the first introduction to the new Pinhead and the original Pinhead, there's just no comparison. The Doug Bradley um, Pinhead and even the Cenobites then, much more terrifying, much more, had much more of a presence, seemed a lot scarier, in my opinion. Like, the new ones I don't think looked bad, but I just, you know, in just comparison-wise, I, I felt like the original Cenobites just looked more realistic, much more terrifying. And I did watch the making of this new Hellraiser movie. It was basically this sort of, um, this thing I watched online that was talking about the special effects in the film. And all of the Cenobites were all... Like they really go into the makeup effects and the Cenobites were all practical effects. It was actors in makeup, in costume. But for some reason in the film, like the way they were shot, they were like, in kind of this weird <clears throat> foggy filter or something where they almost didn't look real. Like they almost looked like, like, like a CG or a partial CG character. I don't know. It was really distracting. I mean, even though I know it was practical makeup, like it somehow looked CG, even though it was practical makeup. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's particularly a good thing, but um, that's what it looked like to me. So at this point, Nora vanishes out of the back of the van because, <laughs> and there's nothing left behind just blood. Like she did, she vanished. She got sucked into the hell world. Okay. Under everyone's fucking nose. All that was left behind was just blood. Okay, van is crashed. Everyone gets out of the fucking van. <clears throat> well, everyone. It's just fucking uh, Trevor and Colin at this point. And they're, like, arguing. And, and and somehow Riley just runs off and no one notices. Which is weird. And, and Pinhead appears to Riley and is like, Ayo, we need more souls. Okay, because that's how this whole puzzle box config, uh, lament configuration thing works. So, if you give us two more, give us two more sacrifices, and we will resurrect your brother. Maybe, like you'll get to see your brother again. So, Riley doesn't know exactly if she's going to get her brother back, or I, I think she assumes that they will give her brother back alive. So. You know, but the Cenobites are not that clear about it. So Riley somehow 
moves the box into the next configuration and ends up stabbing herself in the hand. But Pinhead's like, like, like the rules say we're supposed to take you once you cut your hand, but we could take you now, but we're not gonna. Um, you know, we still want our two other souls, so you better go get them. <clears throat> Some lapses in the story's logic start to kick in at this point, and then we get so okay. So everyone goes back to the mansion, right? Because that's where Riley's other fucking that's where her car is because she just left it there for some reason. It's not like they were planning to go back to the mansion. They were like, let's get the fuck out of here and never come back here because this place is evil. Riley's like, oh, I'm just gonna leave my car here. I don't. It makes no sense. So they run back to the mansion because <clears throat> her car is there. They shut the gate to the mansion with this huge iron gate. Okay. But as soon as they shut the gate, the Chatterer, if you remember the character of the Chatterer from the original Hellraiser series, <clears throat> uh, he appears and he just pushes through the gate. Like he just breaks the gate open. He just walks right through it. And, um, a little too easily, by the way, uh, which I found weird. And that'll make sense. That Well, it won't make sense, but that comes up shortly thereafter. So, yeah, the Chatterer breaks through the uh, the gate and bites Trevor on the arm. And um, from this point on, Trevor acts like he was, like, stung through the heart by a fucking stingray. It's like, dude, you got... Yeah, he got horribly bit in the arm. He got bit in, like, the bicep, but... It's not like his it's not like he was like bleeding out or his legs didn't work or something. He was just bit in the arm, you know, and I don't know. He was acting like he was acting like, oh, I can't walk. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. Really overplaying his uh, his injury. Um, oh, also a, a part that I thought was really funny was once they get inside the house. Oh, yeah, because they, you know, they go to the mansion. They weren't planning on going back in the mansion, but they end up going in anyway. So once they get inside the house, um, Colin's like, Riley, give me your belt. And she's like, what? And he said, give me your fucking belt. <laughs> and he uses her belt to basically tie a tourniquet around Trevor's arm to stop the bleeding. Now, what's funny about this is, one, like, Riley's wearing these, like, like late nineties, overly baggy, like Jinko jeans, like these huge pants. And I'm just like, well, if she takes her belt off, her pants are going to fall off. Like clearly, but they don't somehow. Also, uh, later on, you see, uh, that Colin is actually wearing a belt. He could have took off his own belt, but Oh no, princess didn't want to take off his belt. He just was like, give me your belt so I could tie a tourniquet. Cause I don't want to get, your boyfriend's blood all over my belt. It's, I don't know. I thought that was hilarious. Anyways, where were we? Oh yeah. So <laughs> chatter bites Trevor, you know, cause the chatter just broke through the fence and, um, Riley stabs the chatterer with the box. Okay. And somehow that counts as one of the two souls that she's supposed to round up for the fucking, you know, for the Cenobites. And I'm like, well, how the fuck does that work? Like the chatterer is already a Cenobite. Like, you know what? Like he's part of 
Pinhead's crew, like, somehow that counts. Like, you don't have to kill, like, a living person on Earth. You can just kill a Cenobite with the... You could stab a Cenobite with the box. And Pinhead's just like, okay, that counts as one. And then fucking boom. Chains with hooks come out of nowhere and tear the fucking Chatterer to pieces. I'm like, that's dumb. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm assuming that's some type of reshoot of some kind. I think originally, rather, I think Colin and Trevor or Riley end up dying at the end. And they were like, oh, let's, we can't kill Colin because he's a gay man of color and it won't look good if we murder gay people on, on camera or, I mean, there was, I mean, there was also Matt, but he was killed off camera. Like we can't kill all the gay people, especially the one that's a person of color. That would not be a good look. So let's let him live. (laughs) So pretty much from this point on, there's all these weird things where I'm like, I don't, I don't, I imagine they probably shot maybe like two or three other endings <laughs> and they just kind of chopped everything together, just chopped and screwed it until they had an ending. That's what I'm guessing. So, like I said before, they run into the mansion and they close, uh, there's this, these giant mechanized gates that completely cover the entire mansion, like a cage. And uh, Voight built these bit pretty much to keep Cenobites out. Um, and the Cenobites can't breach this cage around the house somehow, even though they can... Uh, clearly, they broke down the gate out front with ease. And they can appear anywhere at any time, bending time and space at will, like fucking Doctor Strange or some shit, but whatever. So the Cenobites are waiting outside because they can't get into the house because there's a big cage around it that they can't get through for some reason. Also, I noticed uh, when the cage closes, there's like this huge gap. Like, is the cage is like this weird configuration. Like, it, it's a weird pattern on the cage. It almost looks like, it kind of looks like the puzzle box itself. And they can't, there's like this, there's like random sized openings in the cage, you know, it's not like a chain link fence or something. And there's like a hole that's big enough for anyone to probably crawl through and get to the door. And the Cenobites just refuse to do that. Also that's demonstrated earlier on in the movie when uh, Riley first goes to the mansion and she can't get in, but she crawls through the cage because there's an opening that can fit a person in it. Clearly she crawls through the ho- a hole in the cage and then in through an unlocked window in the mansion. So, <laughs> Clearly, the Cenobites could have got in rather using magic or just using uh, basic logic, but they don't. They just stand outside. They just post up out front. And they're like, well, you got to come out eventually. So suddenly, Voight appears because, you know, he's hiding in the fucking walls of the mansion. And he appears out of the walls, and we find out <clears throat> that him and Trevor have been working together this whole time. Trevor and Voight, like, basically planned this entire thing. And um, also because, you know, Trevor hurt his little arm. So they basically laid him on a couch in this random room and he's alone. And Voight notices he's alone and he fucking goes in there and he's basically like, he's like, you better fucking get me my last fucking soul. You better make sure that box fucking kills somebody because fucking, you know, we're in this together, motherfucker. And anyway, so, so yeah, we find out that Trevor was working with Voight the whole time. Uh, how exactly we don't know. We don't, we, we don't know. It's like, how did they meet? It's like Voight 
was in this mansion alone for the last six years? When would he have had time to run into Trevor, meet him, pay him a bunch of money to manipulate this girl to break into a warehouse and then into a storage container inside the warehouse and then into a safe that's inside the storage container in the warehouse to take the box home, like banking that somebody will start fiddling with it and then start stabbing people and start feeding souls to the fucking Cenobites so that Voight can later get to eventually the sixth configuration from all these people basically killing themselves with the box so that he can get his wish from the God of hell. That's banking on a lot of coincidences. So yeah, Voight needs the box to get its six souls so that he can get his audience with God, as they say, and get his wish. And at the same time, Riley is trying to get to the sixth configuration so that she could save her brother. Because that's all this was explained in fucking Voight's notebooks earlier on. Um, so, because one of the things that you can wish for is uh, resurrection. You can have the ability to bring someone back from the dead. And that's what Riley wants to do. So, oh, so, so Voight, okay, why did he stay in this house the whole time? Okay, so he, um, he wants to get his audience with God and get the box uh, solved and all that shit because he has this large brass contraption that's buried through his torso and sticking out of his chest and back. It's this huge fucking thing. And it, it, it threads his nerves through this like mechanical loom. And every once in a while, the contraption will start moving and you can see like his nerves, his little bloody thin wiry nerves, like being threaded through this machine. And it's uh, incredibly painful and it can't be removed. And, um, and his pain is basically constant. So he really wants to, <laughs> he really wants the box to get solved so he can get this fucking thing removed. So Riley doesn't want to sacrifice Trevor or Colin. So she devises a plan where it's like, okay, Trevor, Colin, we are stuck in this house. There's a cage around the house that's protecting us for now. And there's fucking Cenobites outside. If we go out there, they're going to fucking kill us. So Riley is like, okay, we're not going to lose anybody else. So she, okay, here's her plan. Her plan is to lure one of the Cenobites into the house. Like it's a zombie from Day of the Dead or some shit. And then stab it with the box like she did the Chatterer. And she's like, if we can lure one in, stab one of them instead of instead of stabbing one of us, then, you know, the final configuration can be done and then they will take away the Cenobite soul instead of fucking one of ours. And then we can get the fuck out of here. And maybe I can get my brother back. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, they're, they're just luring in a Cenobite. I don't understand. Okay, fine. Like, uh, like it's a dog or something. So as long as they get the final soul to satisfy the box, Matt gets resurrected. Problem solved, right? wrong they get one of the Cenobites into the house so they successfully lure one in and they sh they shut the gates but the Cenobite gets in the house and starts chasing her and then Riley drops the box and loses it 
and somehow Voigt gets uh, a hold of the box and stabs Colin with it. And when he stabs Colin, I mean, okay, so imagine the puzzle box, right? And there's this blade sticking out of it. That's probably a good two, two and a half inches. And it's sort of hooked. And it looks pretty sharp. And he stabs Colin and cuts him. He he cuts basically a 12-inch gash in his stomach going from his navel all the way up to his sternum. Just a straight line. <laughs> and somehow, Colin's fine. This doesn't kill him. His guts don't spill out on the fucking floor or anything like that. He just falls over and says, ouchie. I got a tummy pain now. <laughs> got a boo-boo on my tummy. So Voigt gets the box to the sixth and final configuration. And um, meanwhile, uh, Riley stabs Trevor with the box because the, the box wrote, it became its uh, final Leviathan configuration, which is basically two pointed, two very tall pointy pyramids that are attached to the butt. So both ends are like just big spikes. So yeah, Riley stabs Trevor with the box and Voight gets all the, the, the brass contraption removed and the whole scene were like, they were the, the, when the contraption comes out of his uh, body, it's actually a pretty cool effect. He, he like falls over on the ground and it just all fucking falls out. It's like, it's like nuts and bolts and ping, ping, ping. All this hardware is just falling out of him. And then the, the wound in his chest and his back, like reform, like the, the skin and all the muscle tissue and everything sort of just reanimates and like closes back up. But it's a pretty good effect. Um, but after this, Trevor and Voight get, they end up getting sucked into hell, uh, separately. And now Riley can get her wish. But, Benhead's like, all right, what's your pleasure, little girl? But realizes that any wish they grant is probably going to end up being some type of cruel trick. That's what Riley realizes, that she's not going to get her her brother back. And, you know, if she keeps playing the Cenobites game, she's probably going to end up on the losing end of it. So... Literally, the end, it's literally like the end of A Nightmare on Elm Street, where it's just like, you could take away the monster's power by just turning your back on it. <laughs> That's basically how they make the Cenobites fuck off and go back to hell. It's like, okay, whatever. And Riley and Colin jump into her car, that's conveniently still parked outside, and they go home, and a happy ending, I guess. Meanwhile, in hell... We get this really cool scene of Voight being turned into a Cenobite because since the sixth configuration was actually able to be solved, uh, he also gets his wish. Like, his wish gets honored, and so does Riley's. But his wish, they're like, oh, we want to give you the <laughs> pinhead is like, we want to give you, like, the best fucking gift that we give people who solve this fucking puzzle box, and that's power the power of Leviathan. And um, once they suck him into hell, they basically crucify him and turn him into a Cenobite, which was kind of a cool scene. 
Um, you know, his skin turns all white and his eyes turn black and they fucking, his skin becomes all mangled and shit. He becomes a Cenobite. And you don't, there's, there's not a ton of that in the Hellraiser series where you see people actually be transformed from people into Cenobites. Um, which is where Cenobites come from. They're basically like tortured, perverted souls from earth that get sucked into the box, brought into hell, and then they get transformed into these monsters called Cenobites. So the seat of uh, scene of Voight being turned into one, I thought was kind of cool, and that's how they ended the movie. Uh, it's like uh, Doctor Chenard from Hellraiser Two. If you saw Hellraiser Two, he's do I do I think that Voight's um, transformation into a Cenobite was better than Doctor Chenard's? No. Um, also, also I, I I think Hellraiser Two was a better movie. Also, but um, you know. That's basically the end. That's the end of Hellraiser 2022. So now I'm going to um, get into some further details. Now that you kind of know the story, I'm going to kind of get into things I liked, things I didn't like. I was looking forward to this movie. I have, uh, I mean, <laughs> I do have, uh, I, don't know, I, I do, I'm skeptical. Um. I think rightfully so. I'm very skeptical of uh, horror franchises being rebooted, or any franchise really, uh, being rebooted, um, which I think this clearly is a reboot. But um, I was looking forward to it, and in general, you know, I thought the movie was um, okay. I don't think it's by any means the worst Hellraiser movie. Hmm. I thought the uh, it's the mo- um the movie is very dark, which I think is kind of a good and bad thing. Most of the movies like shot at night and indoors. There's very few scenes that are actually during the daytime, um, which was kind of annoying. <laughs> um, when I was watching it, I was I watched it on my TV in the living room because I have a huge TV, and I also watched it in my bedroom and it's fucking really dark it's a lot of the movies really hard to see i really liked um the lament configuration you know it's such an iconic thing uh this totem this uh you know the 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 hellraiser box the lament configuration is like so iconic that the idea of changing it just seems... I'm sure people are really pissed off about it. And I love the original Lemon configuration. I think it's very cool. I think it's a very... Um, it's just... It's it's one of one of many things in Hellraiser... In the Hellraiser movie world... That I, I think is just fan, fucking fantastic. But I actually liked... The new Lemon configuration. And sort of... Um, how they kind of go into detail about what the box is and what like basically the rules. Cause in horror movies, I do believe in rules, the rules of the box, they do set up. So I did enjoy that. Um, do I like it? Do I like the box, the new box better than the old one? Um, I mean, my heart says no, <laughs> but my brain is like, well, the lament configuration now has more of a character. I guess it has more of a story. It has, it, it, you know, there's a process that the box must go through in order to get to this final stage. Um, 
really the <laughs> the the lemon configuration has the probably the most clearly defined story arc in the whole movie more so than any of the actual people in the story but um you know there's uh the rules of the box were not really followed completely like there was they did bend the rules a lot which i was like okay we were rather gonna follow the fucking rules or we're not going to follow the rules like when riley gets stabbed through the hand i'm like why didn't the fucking chains and the hooks come out of nowhere and tear her apart right then and there because they did that with everyone else but not her i mean they do that with trevor I don't know. I just think if like you're gonna set up these rules, you should follow them because it makes it makes the stakes that much more um, solidified. And when you can be kind of wishy washy with the rules, then it's kind of like okay, well, I don't know. It, it it makes me check out for a moment. So, but for the most part, I like the box. Um, all the actors. For the most part, I thought were fine. They weren't particularly memorable. Um, the main actress, Riley, like I thought that she was a good actress. Um, it's just her character is just so not interesting. Like the very kind of one dimensional. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. She goes from like loser party girl to fucking like detective adventurer of the supernatural just suddenly. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. Um, the brother Matt, he's only in like the first act of the, of the fucking movie. But I thought that guy was fine. He just looks like generic white dude guy, but he actually emoted, uh, on, on camera. And, um, I did have a sense that he, was a caring older brother to Riley. Um, his boyfriend, Colin, um, not a great character. Like, he wasn't helpful in any way. He was annoying. And I don't know anything about the actual actor who played Colin, but didn't, not a good actor. <laughs> like, he was just, he just came off very annoying. And he didn't really come off as somebody who's, significant other just vanishes in the middle of the night. So it's like you're, you're off fucking dicking around with your significant other's loser sister who just got kicked out of the house because she's an alcoholic with a drug problem, but you're not, you know, trying to find out exactly what happened to your boyfriend. You just believe the crazy sister that would like, we have to go hunt after ghosts from hell. It's, I don't know. And the character of Nora, I mean, she was basically there to make the body count go up. Like, she's basically a completely useless character. Um, (laughs) The character of Voight, um, he actually, uh, he's got a kind of a Joe Pilato essence about him. Joe Pilato is, uh, let me see, he was in uh, Day of the Dead, one of the George Romero film. Um, he was the character of Rhodes. He's like the bad guy in the movie. Um, kind of had that kind of feeling going on. And I thought that guy was fine. 
You know what I mean? They, he's not in the movie a lot, but I mean, he does come across as a stuffy millionaire asshole who um, has been tormented by demons from hell for six years, and he's willing to sacrifice, kill, manipulate anybody uh, in his way in order to, um, you know, get what he wants. And I don't know who else was in the movie. There was fucking the lady who worked for Void to get taken. I mean, that character. She didn't even really need to be in the movie. Like she was basically there as just for a higher body count. Really? (laughs) Uh, Who else was in the movie? Mm, That's basically it. It was the lady in the hospital, Voight, Riley and her brother, Matt, her boyfriend, Trevor, um, you know, and Colin, the uh, roommate, and then Nora. That's it. And that's the only bit. Well, I do, I do kind of like that they kept the cast small. I don't know if that is, uh, was like a necessity because of COVID, like trying to shoot a movie during COVID or what, but, you know, everything was very isolated. Every scene was very isolated, you know, and I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe they shot this during COVID and then you can only have so many people on set. I don't know. But, Let's see, what else did I like about it? Um, I liked that the score incorporated some of the original score from the original Hellraiser movie. I, thought, I was like, oh, that's that's neat. You know, um, I, I mean, I liked that the, those elements were there. I didn't think that the score was like badass or something like a, like a John Carpenter score. Or fucking Ennio Morricone or something like that. Um, but. You know, I thought it was serviceable for the story. I like that they kind of go into the mythology of uh, the puzzle box and everything, but I mean, and I and I liked seeing Voight getting turned into a Cenobite at the end. That was cool. Uh, the actual makeup on the Cenobites, I don't know. I thought it was just okay. I didn't think Pinhead looked very good. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I thought the chatter looked okay. And there was one called, I don't know. There were two other ones I can't remember the name of right now, but I thought they looked fine. But I just, you know, when you compare them against those, that first movie or even the second movie, it's just, they got it right the first time. But, you know, I do appreciate that there were, you know, at least a healthy dose of practical effects in the film. I, I'm like, that's great. And it seems like they're probably going to end up doing a sequel where they're going to go more into, uh, probably more into hell itself. Cause that's where Voight is. And maybe they'll end up reopening the puzzle box and having to go back to hell for some fucking reason. I don't know. So and if that happens, I'll probably end up watching that too. Cause I thought this movie was like, okay, I thought it was, I thought it was very average. But okay, so I watched this movie a couple times, and it dawned on me because the first time I watched it, I was like, something about this is really familiar, and I just couldn't put my finger on it. And then the second time I watched it, it, I realized exactly what it was. And this movie is basically a reboot 
of the remake of The Evil Dead. Now, we all love The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 especially, Army of Darkness is fun, but the remake of The Evil Dead is one of those rare instances where a remake is done and it's really good, um, which I recommend. It's Halloween season. Watch the remake of The Evil Dead. It's very good. But this movie is essentially... The Evil Dead. I don't want to say, I want to go as far as to say it's ripping it off, but all the beats are there. Like, they're kind of, like, I mean, you know, if you look at the, in the movie as a whole, it's kind of beat for beat the same movie. With, with some, like, Nightmare on Elm Street sprinkled in there a little bit. A little, little tiny sprinkling of Nightmare on Elm Street in there. And uh, how do I come to that conclusion? I'm glad you asked. Um... So the evil dead is basically this, right? A young woman with a substance abuse problem ends up in an abandoned house with her brother, this sort of annoying dude with glasses, um, a very exotic woman of some kind, and uh, her brother's girlfriend who ends up becoming possessed by the evil from the Necronomicon in Evil Dead, right? Book gets opened, the evil gets into the uh, the girlfriend, and then she becomes like a, like an evil zombie, right? And the our protagonist, <laughs> our, uh, our, our drug-addicted protagonist must um, close the Necronomicon and, and basically expunge the evil that has been released by opening this, this book. Okay. And that's basically the remake of the evil dead. Okay. This movie Hellraiser 2022 is about a young woman with a substance abuse problem that ends up in a rural house in the middle of nowhere with her brother who's who's you know he's dead but you know his ghost is kind of uh still existing in there and uh, basically the whole point of her even going there is even is to save her brother but it's like her her brother um the brother's boyfriend who's an annoying guy with glasses (laughs) who's um and then nora the sort of exotic random girl who's just there to be part of the body count and I almost said Dr. Chenard, uh, Voight. Voight is there because he has been possessed by the power of the box. You know, he's got that big brass mechanized loom inside of his chest cavity that's threading his nerves through it and putting him through pain. So he, he's already experienced the sort of evil power of the box. Okay? And... I was like, I'm like, this, this movie is basically the remake of the evil dead, except the remake of the evil dead is a lot better. (laughs) Like in every way, the gore is better. The special effects are better. I'd go as far as to say the acting is better. Um, the story's got way better pacing. Um, the evil dead movie doesn't really pause. There's not a lot of, dead weight anywhere it's it's you know it's very lean there's not a lot of fat on it i think the music's better (laughs) like the story makes sense and the mythology 
of the Necronomicon, like they follow the rules, okay? If you open up the book, if you read from the book, the evil dead will come from the fucking woods and try to fucking kill everybody. But you have to follow certain steps that are laid out in the book in order to eradicate the evil and send it back to hell where it came from. You know, it's... But I thought, uh, you know, if if you watched this film, if you watched the new Hellraiser film and you're like, this is okay, it's like not terrible, just go watch the remake of The Evil Dead. It's October, it's Halloween season, and if you want to see a better version of Hellraiser 2022, go watch Evil Dead. Okay, there you go, problem solved. Uh, another th- thing I thought that was really interesting was... Um, the Rotten Tomatoes has this thing that was posted and what it is, it's, it's on the editorial page of Rotten Tomatoes and it's this article called all Hellraiser movies ranked by tomato meter. Okay. So this is how that, uh, this is how all the movies are ranked. There's 11 films in the franchise, and this is how they're all laid out. So this is how this Rotten Tomatoes editorial lays out all the Hellraiser movies. Okay, let's start at number 11. Hellraiser Revelations from 2011. It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 0% with a 6% audience score. Hmm. Um... Yeah, that's about right. I uh, I didn't like Hellraiser Revelations at all. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was I, th- I thought it was rather bad. I can agree with a six percent audience score and a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I don't know. It's very it's very bush league, cynical, and dumb. Uh, it, it looks like it was shot over a weekend. For you know, like a hundred dollars, it's yeah. I I can completely agree that Hellraiser Revelations should be at the bottom uh, slot. Number ten is Hellraiser Hellworld from two thousand five, which has a zero percent Rotten Tomato score and a twenty three percent audience score. Hmm. Yeah. The, I mean, <laughs> this movie. Um, you know what? I, I, I gotta say, I, I think I like the Hellraiser series of movies more than probably most people would probably would want to admit that they do. But, um, I didn't hate Hellworld. It's corny and shit. It's star studded cast. I mean, it's, it's, I believe it was the last film that Doug Bradley, the original pinhead, the original lead Cenobite uh, was in, and or at least it was one of it was it was rather the last or second to last. Anyways, um, but it stars to cast. You have Doug Bradley, you have a young Henry Cavill, you have fucking Superman's in there, and then you have the great and powerful Lance Henriksen. And Lance Henriksen, of course, uh, he was Bishop in the Aliens movies. Um, He's fucking, you know, pumpkin head. I mean, Lance Henriksen's fucking fantastic, but, you know, he was also in this movie. And it's like, and it's people like him that kind of help make the movie <laughs> what it is. But I, I didn't hate fucking Hellworld. I, I, I don't think I would give it a 23%. 
Okay, I, I think I would give it, you know, I'd give it at least a 50, you know? <laughs> you know, I, I I would give it a uh, a strong D plus. Maybe, it, eh, let's call it a C minus. I would give, yeah, I'd give it a C minus. I think it's uh, a little, it's less than average, but um, I still enjoy it. There's things about it I really enjoy. I didn't, I don't think it's, you know, the greatest Hellraiser movie, but... You know, Hellworld at number 10? Mm. I don't know if I quite agree with that. I would probably put part four before I, you know, at a 10 slot before I did Hellworld. But I don't know. That's just me. So the number nine slot is Hellraiser Hellseeker from 2002. It has a 0% Rotten Tomato score and a 33% audience score. Like, I didn't, I didn't think Hellseeker was really, you know... It's it's not great, <laughs> but um, but I I you know I don't I didn't think it was terrible. What's that dude's name? The guy who's mayhem from the insurance commercials, uh, Dean Winters from uh, Oz. He was fine, you know. I I I think Hellseeker is a perfectly fine uh, Hellraiser sequel. You know, and you have Ashley Lawrence, who was Kirsty from the original film, so that was cool to see. But you know, I um, also okay. Let me explain why I give so much fucking. Um, I I give a lot of leeway to the Hellraiser sequels, is because I've read the Hellraiser comic books. I haven't read all of them, but I've read quite a few, and they really are kind of like single story uh, anthology type stories. Like there's not really a, a single storyline that connects everything. And it's sort of like these sort of bleak stories that could be something out of like, I don't know, like twilight zone or black mirror, or, you know, something like that. Tell some, uh, tell some, the, you know, tell some the crypt or tell some the dark side. It's sort of this sort of, a, there's a there's a story about some people, and then there's sort of like a very <laughs> uh, kind of like cynical point that they want to make to it, or you know, or nihilistic point they want to make to the story, and then you know the somehow the puzzle box is incorporated in the story somehow, and somehow the fucking Cenobites appear. You know, it's a lot of the comics are like that, and that's kind of what some of these sequels feel like. So I'm like, oh, it's like watching the comic come to life. So yeah, Hellseeker at number nine. Mm. I think I would probably put Hellraiser, Hellseeker probably a little bit higher, actually, in my opinion. Um, the next one at number eight would be Hellraiser Debtor uh, from 2005. It has a 13% Rotten Tomato score and a 26% audience score. Hmm... I believe this is the one that has like a fucking, there's like a cult in it. <laughs> I didn't think this one was terrible either. I, I would probably say, um, I like Hellseeker over Debtor, but, um, you know, it's 13 per, it's actually, that's where Rotten Tomatoes actually gave it a fucking score, which is, you know, <laughs> that's amazing. It's a, and it's half the amount, it's half the percentage that, you know, the audience gave it's 13% with a 26% audience score. Mm, I don't know. 26%. I mean, I would, you know, I'd give it a, I'd, I'd give it at least a 50. 
you know? It's like any, anything below 30 is just insulting, I think, you know? And, and Rotten Tomatoes scores, I just don't trust those fucking assholes. I just don't, just in general. <laughs> you know, I know it's like an accumulated kind of average score and everything like that, but I don't know. I should get a job at Rotten Tomatoes. I wonder if those guys get paid. Does, do they, does, do, do you like professional, like what does it take to be a professional like reviewer? Do those, do those fucking people get fucking paid? Like I've done enough episodes where I think I can, I'm, I think I have a, I can rate a movie pretty fairly, I think, but um, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't agree I wouldn't agree with 13% and I wouldn't uh, agree with the 26%. I would definitely rate it higher. Um, that's 2005 Hellraiser Debtor. At number seven, we have Hellraiser Inferno from 2000. It has a 14% Rotten Tomato score, a whole percent above Debtor, and a 35% audience score. Yeah, I would say that I actually um, I like Hellraiser Inferno. I, I think it's, again, I think it's definitely, it's much uh, more worthy than a 14% critic score and a 35% audience score. You know, I'd say Hellraiser Inferno, uh, it's very, Hellraiser Inferno feels like something that would be in a fucking Hellraiser comic, actually. It's, it's, um, you know what? And I would say it's probably more connected to the 2022 Hellraiser movie than, Maybe any of the other ones in that, um, uh, well, specifically in the part where, um, when people get, they get stabbed by the fucking puzzle box in the new movie and then their brain, like they, they get disoriented and they go into this like other dimension where that's where the Cenobites get you in the sort of like nightmare Freddy Krueger world where like the rules of reality are easily manipulated and malleable. And that's kind of what's happening with the main character in um, Hellraiser Inferno, played by Craig Schaefer, who I believe was in Nightbreed. Also, Clive Barker written and directed. Clive Barker, I think, only did like a couple of, like, you know, um, theatrical in theater fucking movies. There was Hellraiser and then, um, Nightbreed, and I think Craig Schaefer is like, I don't know, he's just one of those like 90s actors who was he did a lot, you know, he did a lot of kind of whatever crappy stuff, and then he did some stuff that was cool, like he's in uh, A Fire in the Sky, and I like A Fire in the Sky, it's like, you know it's like one of the best fucking alien abduction movies of all time, you know but yeah, I would definitely give Hellraiser Inferno um, I would eh, yeah, I would. I'd probably give Hellraiser Inferno. Let's call it like a C plus. <laughs> what, what would that be? I don't know. That's you know. I'd probably give it a 65. 60, 65. Let's call it sixty two and a half out of a hundred. That's what I would give Hellraiser Inferno. Um, coming in at number six. Hellraiser Bloodline from 1996. It has a 24% Rotten Tomato score and a 36% audience score. 
Now I'm kind of shocked that Bloodline is so high up on this particular the particular list. Um, Bloodline is basically uh, Hellraiser in space. That's basically what this is. This is, yeah, this is that was sort of a running joke in the late '90s, early 2000s. It's like the only place you can really go after you know after a certain point is you have to go to space. It's like you know they did Jason in space. You know they did. And then they got a fucking Hellraiser in space. And I think this could have been, um, well, Hellraiser Bloodline is the fourth film in the series. And I think it could have been a lot better. I like the concept. Well, the whole concept, it kind of goes around um, the, it goes from like the 18th century to the fucking 20th century. And it, it, it kind of follows the, the, the puzzle, what do they call them? The, the toy maker, he's basically the guy who first made the box and sort of his family's bloodline throughout time. And um, I don't know. I, th- I thought the concept was interesting, but I remember watching all these movies. I think Bloodline was actually the last one to come out in theaters. I, I think. I'm, I think that's true. Um, but, and I can see why they didn't want to put any more of them in theaters after this one because this one was kind of this should have just been direct to video and I think there's a period of time where like people who were like well I I grew up with like grindhouse theaters you know those sort of like you know 42nd street type theaters or or I had the drive-in or whatever like there's that era and then sort of my era are people who uh, still went to the movie theaters on a regular basis and um we're very much into video stores. So there's the big releases and then you have all the old ones from back in the day, but then you have the direct to video. So you're talking about your, you know, your Charles band, full moon production type stuff. You're talking, um, well, most of your Hellraiser movies. And that was just in time where like things that were straight to video or even a little bit later, like in the early 2000s, where you had all those like serial killer movies. Like you had the Jeremy Renner, Jeffrey Dahmer film. You had the, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name. The guy who plays Francis from fucking Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, he played John Wayne Gacy in a film. They did a Ted Bundy film. There's an Ed Gein film and that that series of serial killer films, which I do recommend. And they're just called John, they're, they're, they're just called Gacy, Dahmer, um, I think the Ed Gein one, I don't know if it's just called Gein or Ed Gein. And then there was the Ted Bundy movie. Like go back and watch those from the early two thousands. They're fun. They're like really violent. And, um, but like they're, there's, they're made with pretty good quality actually. You know, they're, you know, they're a little bit corny. <laughs> it's a little bit cynical, but, uh, for the most part for, if you like true crime, if you're into serial killer shit, fucking go watch those films. They're, they're fun. Um, yeah, Bloodline at number, what they put this at? Bloodline at number six. See, no, no, <laughs> I would probably put Bloodline closer to, I don't know. I'd probably put it at like nine or 10, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but let's see. Going through the list, uh, we have Hellraiser Judgment from 2018, and that's at number five. 
somebody gave me Hellraiser Judgment on DVD. Like I had a client at one of the old shops I worked at. And we every time he came in, we just talked about horror movies. And it was actually in 2018. He's like, did you see the new Hellraiser movie? And I was like, no. And he's like, I have a copy of it. I'll bring it to you. Uh, I was like, okay. And he just he came in for his haircut. He's just like, here you go. I want you to have this. I was like, okay. And then I went home and watched it, and I was like, oh. I mean, this isn't this isn't great, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, when you look at Hellraiser Judgment, you know... Um, when you look at it in comparison to kind of everything else in the, in the Hellraiser franchise, it's really not that bad really. Um, and I want to say that the director, his name is Gary J. Tunicliffe. Uh, he did, um, he did like makeup effects on like all the Hellraiser films. Um, from well, not all of them, but <laughs> but a big chunk of them, uh, including part three, which I I'm a fan of part three. That's sort of where people. That's sort of the the line where people are just like, "Do you like part three or not?" It's sort of the um, it's like the Metallica Black Album of Hellraiser movies, <laughs> where it's like. Did you like Hellraiser 3? Me? Love Hellraiser 3. So, um, but yeah, Hellraiser Judgment. I, visually, I didn't think Hellraiser 3 was bad. I liked the, I thought the special effects were fine. Um, they got some new guy to play uh, Pinhead, which was, you know, that's big shoes to fill. But um, I don't, I don't think I would put it at number five. Like not even close. I would probably put Hellraiser Judgment. I would, you know, probably closer to like number nine, maybe number eight. I'd put it closer to the bottom, the bottom half of the list. Um, let's see, number four on the Rotten Tomatoes uh, list of Hellraiser films by ranked by uh, the Tomato Meter. We have Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth from 1992. And mm, this movie came out at the, precisely the right time for me. I was 10 years old. And um, I remember seeing this movie when it came out. And I was so fucking stoked. Um, it, it currently has a 40% Rotten Tomato score and a 35% audience score. Interesting. It has... Like Hellraiser Judgment, it has a higher Rotten Tomatoes score than an audience score. And um, I don't I don't agree with that at all. I mean, Hellraiser Judgment, 36%, 28% audience score. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'd probably give it a little bit of a higher score than that. Hellraiser 3... 40% Rotten Tomatoes score, 35% audience score. I don't I don't fucking think so. That movie is at least it's 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 at least in the high 60s. Actually, you know what? I would say, I would say Hellraiser Hell on Earth. Hellraiser 3, I'd say that's at least a 70 
at least a 70%. Okay? And if you can't fucking handle that, then you can kiss my grits. Okay? How about that? How do you like that? Um, Let's jump to Hellraiser... Um, Hellraiser 2. Technically, it's Hellbound Hellraiser 2 at number 3. It currently has a 50% Rotten Tomato score and a 50 per, 58% audience score. You know, I can see why people would rank it, give it those percentages. Um, I could, I could see why it's, why it's, it has that, but personally, I think, um, it it should be higher. Hellbound Hellraiser 2, um, I would, you know, I'd probably, I'd probably, you know, probably put it in that, uh, high 60s, you know? I'll probably give it a, you know, somewhere between, give it like a 65, 68, you know, somewhere in that's called 67, 67%. I would definitely rank it higher than 58%. Um, what is, what does something need to be to be considered fresh? Like, let me look that up. Okay. So anything, I guess if you have a 60, that's considered fresh. Anything below a 60 is not fresh. Okay. So. Pretty much everything I would rate above a 60 besides Revelations. Mm. God, people are harsh, man. <laughs> I thought I was harsh. I mean, I'm prob- I probably am harsh, but I'm harsh in a different way. Um, I'm harsh in, in the way where I would probably put the brand new Hellraiser in the bottom the bottom half of this list and not in the top half. That's how, that's what kind of harsh I am. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I definitely think, uh, Hellraiser two should be at least considered fresh, like right on the border. It's like the, it should be a clean 60%, which I think the audience score would agree with me. It's at 58, but I think 60 is fine. And I think it's a suitable, it's a, it's a fine sequel to the first one. So now we're at number two. Number two would be Hellraiser from 2022. God, why did they have to? Why do they have to just call it? Why do they call it Hellraiser? Like, if it's if this movie is so goddamn fucking close to the book as some people claim, it's like why don't you just call it the Hellbound Heart? It's never been called the Hellbound Heart. Any, maybe it's probably some kind of legal thing. <laughs> They're like Hellraiser's the name of the book. Hellraiser's the name of the movies. Hellbound Heart is the name of the books, and we can those names cannot be interchangeable at any point. It's probably some dumb thing like that, but they should have just called this the Hellbound Heart. It, it it would make it fresh. It would give it get some freshness to it, I think. But the 2022 film is sitting at a Rotten Tomato score of 67, so it's it is fresh, and it has a 62 percent audience score. You know, I would probably swap the scores on Hellraiser 2022 and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 from 1988. Being, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably say this, uh, uh, the new movie is probably closer to a 58 and Hellraiser 2020. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, the new Hellraiser is probably closer to a uh, 58 and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 is probably closer to a 62. That's my opinion. But um, but they ranked it number two. That's like, come on, bro. 
you're saying that Hellraiser one. Oh, by the way, number one is Hellraiser, <laughs> obviously, from you know just process of elimination from 1987, the original Clyde Barker film Hellraiser, based on the book The Hellbound Hearts, written by Clyde Barker, and it is sitting at a 70 percent audience. I'm sorry, uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 70 percent, audience score of 73. That's very close, 70 and 73. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, I would probably put the original Hellraiser a little higher than that. I'd probably, I would agree with the audience score on this one. 73. That's, I mean, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good audience score, I think. Um, that's fair. I don't know if I'd give it a 73. I'd probably, you know, I'd probably give it a couple points more maybe, but. I mean, Hellraiser is a really good movie, and I really enjoy it. I, you know, it's, you know, that movie's been around, you know, since I was five years old. So it's like I've watched it a million times, and yeah. Um, so number one, Hellraiser. Yeah, I would say the first one's the best one, definitely. Um, yeah, I would. Pro- I'd probably say, <laughs> um, I'd probably say one. One and then I'd say part two, I'd say Hell on Earth. So I'd say the first three Hellraiser movies just in that order. One, two, three, and then probably jump to um probably Inferno, then Hellseeker, then Hellworld, Deader, um then the new Hellraiser, then Bloodline, and then Revelations last that's how i'd rank it huh. but that's what ron uh, tomatoes that's what they ranked it you know i don't i don't quite agree with that but what are you gonna do and um so currently Rotten tomatoes is owned by comcast and hulu is owned by comcast and disney Disney has an option to purchase Comcast in 2024. So there's no word as of this recording of any deal being struck. Um, but fuck. And so, so basically in the next two years, Disney can own the Hellraiser franchise. <laughs> so they're just going to fucking own everything eventually. Um, yeah. Hellraiser 2022. Do I think it deserves a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes? Hmm. No, <laughs> but check it out. You know, I, th- you know, it's, if you're like me and you're trying to just watch as many horror movies as you can, especially new ones. And uh, during this, uh, this lovely Halloween season, go check it out. Okay. Okay. So I also, uh, saw the new Halloween movie, Halloween ends. I went and watched it in theaters. Saw it at the lovely galaxy theaters here in Austin, Texas, which is, um, I don't know. It, it it it's it feels like a nice big, airy kind of mall of a uh, of a movie theater. It's very sterile and not particularly an inspired space at all. And but it's you know it's trying to keep up with Alamo. It's trying to compete with Alamo Draft House. You know, so they have a bar and stuff like that. But and they also have really nice seats. 
you know, the theater I went into, every single fucking seat was a reclining leather seat with fucking, you know, table and cup holders. It was very nice. And there was only four other people in the theater, <laughs> which is great because, you know, I tried to originally get tickets at Alamo Draft House. I'm like, every fucking showing was like, you know, full. <laughs> it was rather sold out or the only seats that were left over were kind of like crappy ones. But, you know, I ended up getting some really good seats at the Galaxy Theater. I might go there again in the future just because there's no fucking people around. And I can be on my phone in the theater without getting in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, um, so I just saw it. I just saw Halloween end. So I'm just going to give you my kind of impressions of it and how I, you know. All the the new trilogy of uh, Halloween movies. We have Halloween from 2018. We have Halloween Kills from 2021. And then we have Halloween Ends this year, 2022. So um, I didn't do a bunch of research into this movie. I'm just going to kind of give you just just how I'm, you know, my raw emotional uh, impressions of, of what we have in this movie. I will say um, Halloween Kills was definitely... Not great. <laughs> um, it had some good things in it, but I didn't really find it to be um, a very satisfying Halloween sequel. In fact, I'd probably put it in one of the one of the worst Halloween sequels, um, which is really a shame because the Halloween twenty eighteen was I thought that was a fine sequel you know um halloween 2018 you know brought back jamie lee curtis and it basically ignored all the films besides the original halloween um from 1978 which i was completely fine with they sort of sort of wiped the slate clean and they're like this is the actual this is the real part two and i thought the it was fine you know i thought it was you know pretty decent uh halloween movie and then um Halloween Kills was just it was killing my fucking brain cells. <laughs> it was it was it was poorly written. Um, I will I will say that the the movie itself had a lot of really good things in it. it you know, it brought back some original characters from the first movie. Um, you know, like Charles Cyphers and you know Jamie Lee Curtis and a bunch of other people. But it's, uh, it's for the most part, the movie looked good. And there were some good, you know, kill scenes and stuff like that. But for the most part, the movie was written very badly and I wasn't very thrilled about it. I did do a commentary for it. You can go through the archives of Skeleton Factory if you want to sync it up with your TV and listen to my commentary. Um, I don't know. At the time, I was I was trying to be as fair as I can with it. But, you know, as time goes on, I'm just like, fuck, that movie sucked ass. But, um... <laughs> If I had to watch that or the new Hellraiser, which one would I watch? I'd probably rewatch Halloween Kills over the new Hellraiser. But that's me. And then now we have Halloween Ends. And currently, you know what? Since we're talking about Rotten Tomatoes, I don't rely on Rotten Tomatoes for much of anything, really. But I just figured since... Um, <laughs> They own the company that made the movie. <laughs> uh, I thought it was appropriate 
currently 2018 Halloween has a 79%. So it's it's definitely fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Halloween Kills has a 39%, which I would agree with. <laughs> because um 39%, yeah. Yeah, that's more or less right. You know, 39-40% is I think that's reasonable. And but the new movie Halloween Ends has 41%. It's not fresh. And I don't agree with that. Um I I liked the new movie. I thought it introduced um some interesting stuff that I didn't expect. You know, it wasn't a movie that I was, you know, I was like, "Oh, I knew this is what this fucking movie was going to be about" because it took some twists and turns and um you know, there's, you know, there's definitely things I didn't like about it. And there's a lot of things that I thought were, you know, I did like, I thought were interesting, you know? Um, and it's not something as simple as like gore. Cause I don't even think the violence or the gore in this movie, there wasn't a lot of it actually. And there wasn't a lot of, some of the kills were done off camera and, um, it kind of, it, it more focused on, sort of other characters other than Michael Myers. Um, so after the the uh, Halloween Kills, what was it? Jamie Lee Curtis, she lives. And her daughter and her daughter's husband, they get killed. But her grand her granddaughter is the only one who in her family that's that lives, that makes it through uh, Halloween Kills. So it's just the two of them, and they live in this really nice house uh, in Haddonfield, and they end up meeting this uh, this local boy um, who, you know, I, I you know I thought that dude was uh, the character of Corey Cunningham, played by this guy named uh, Rohan Campbell, who I'm not really familiar with, but he's I thought he was fine. He goes from being this kind of like kind of pushover shy guy and and he basically has this transformation where he it's kind of somewhere his character is sort of like Jason Patrick's character in the Lost Boys mixed with uh the dude the main character from the movie Christine where he has he's kind of like this nerdy dude who kind of has this transformation and he becomes like this fucking Becomes kind of like cool guy, and then cool guy becomes this violent psycho. <laughs> and I and I liked that part of the movie a lot. And um, what was it? Jamie Lee Curtis's um, granddaughter kind of falls in love with him, and she almost succumbs to becoming evil like him. It's sort of this uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Mickey and Mallory type of situation, but. And, and and they they only met because Jamie Lee Curtis like introduced them, but then you know she ended up realizes that that's a mistake, and then uh, Michael yeah <laughs> the the Corey Cunningham character ends up um, making friends with Michael Myers in a weird way, and then he you know Corey starts killing, um, and you're like oh he's gonna. There was a period of time where you're watching it and you're like, oh, um, like Michael Myers like grabbed him and like looked into his eyes. And maybe I was thinking they were going to do some kind of thing where Michael Myers like transfers his soul 
into this Corey character. And then Corey will then don the mask of Michael Myers and become the next Michael Myers. Because Michael Myers at this point, he's like a fucking old man and shit. He's too old to be fucking... <laughs> he's too old. He needs to retire and you know hand the mantle over to somebody else. So... That's what I thought they were going to do. They were like, oh, no, that's that's how we're going to get more Halloween movies. Like, he's going to pass the torch to a newer character by basically inhabiting the body of a younger man. That's what I thought they were going to, you know, what they were going for. But they didn't end up doing that. But for the most part, yeah, it's like this. The movie itself, like, has all these other themes going on. There's a lot more. The characters are definitely are more fleshed out in this movie, and it's. It's kind of a story of people trying to start over, you know, like this Corey character. <laughs> okay. So this Corey character, um, he's kind of like the local weirdo in town because, um, he was babysitting some fucking rich kids. So this, this like rich couples kid in their giant fucking house. And, um, basically an accident takes place. And the child that he was, you know, Corey was supposed to be watching ends up dying. And it was basically an, an, an accidental death. And Corey ends up not going to prison for it because it was deemed an accident. But these, fan, this, these parents still, you know, their child still died, even though it was an accident. So they're kind of broken up about that. And he was able to not go to jail. And it was an, it was unintentional. He He wasn't trying to, like, harm the kid at all. But... The kid ended up dying, and then he got off, and then after that, he's sort of this, like, this guy in town that people are just like, oh, my God, you know, when he when they see him, they kind of point, and people avoid him, and some people are rude to him and all this shit, and he's just like, fuck, he knows, like, I don't know why he didn't just move out of town. <laughs> so that seems like the most logical thing to do. It's like, dude, just move. Move somewhere else, start a new life, but, you know, he chose to stay in town, whatever. I don't know. I, th- I thought stuff like that was really interesting, but he's trying to start his life over. He's trying to just have a, have a job, socialize. He meets fucking, you know, Laurie Strode's granddaughter. Maybe he can have like a relationship with somebody, you know, that sort of thing. And then like, um, there's some, uh, voiceover, there's some narration in the beginning of the movie where Jamie Lee Curtis is like, you know, Michael Myers has haunted me my entire life. And then, um, he ended up killing my daughter and, you know, my son-in-law and he killed a whole bunch of people in town. And oh, 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 also in Halloween kills, he just disappears. Michael Myers kills a fuckload of people and then he just vanishes and no one knows where he went. So (laughs) in this movie in Halloween ends, um, Jimmy Lee Curtis is just like, oh, Michael Myers must have just left town or something, so I'm just going to start a new life. In the, second, in the first movie, she was like, she, you know, she was living in a fucking compound that was locked down, and, you know, she was armed to the teeth and whatever, and she was all paranoid. She's like, Michael Myers is going to fucking come for me one day. I'll be ready for that motherfucker. And then part two was like, you know, she was a little less crazy. And then part three, it's like, oh, she's like totally normal now, which... I don't know the continuity of that between, you know, the previous two movies was, I don't know. It it didn't make a lot of sense to me, but 
for the for the sake of this movie, I thought it was fine. I'm like, okay, she's moved on with her life. She lives in a nor she lives in town now. She doesn't live in a remote compound outside of town. She lives in a normal house. She lives with her granddaughter and she's trying to just live a normal life. And I I thought that was fine. And her um you know, her granddaughter lost her mom and dad. So the two of them are living together and it's <laughs> It's kind of uh, this codependent relationship, you know. It's you know between Lori Strode and her uh, granddaughter. Her, name, her name's Allison, you know, and they're just trying to, you know, they're just trying to get through life, and they seem to be doing really well. Like they're moving on, you know, and um, but um, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of really good stuff in here, uh, things that I thought were really interesting, but I think. Uh, <laughs> The last um, 10 minutes or so, everything got kind of, everything got kind of weird. And you knew, I mean, you know that fucking Jamie Lee Curtis is going to have her fucking standoff with Michael Myers. She's going to have her final stand. And you don't know if she's going to fucking live or die. And you assume, I, I, well, not even assume, like you don't know if Michael Myers is going to end up dying. Like, he might die, he might not die. Or they may leave it on a cliffhanger so they can have more sequels. But I think it's safe to say that it's pretty definitive that Michael Myers is not coming back. At least in the the David Goyer, not David Goyer, um, David Gordon Green, rather, uh, Halloween franchise. Michael Myers is definitely not coming back. He is, he's, he's, if, if you've seen the movie, you, you, you agree with me. He's Michael Myers is dead. He's not coming back. Um, but I think for the most part, I, I like, I don't, I don't understand where they get these fucking rankings from 41% on the tomato meter. And, 57% audience score. So they think it's less than fresh, the audience. And then Tomato Meter is like, it's way down there. Um, I would say Halloween Ends, I would definitely, I would call it fresh. Like, I thought it was, it's not a bad Halloween movie, you know? Here's the rankings of the fucking, the newer movies. It's like Halloween 2018 is the best of the trilogy. And then Halloween Ends, and then fucking Halloween Kills is definitely a distant third. I don't know what the fuck people are talking about. Um, I would definitely say, hey, it's fucking Halloween season. Watch the new Halloween movie. You know, it's it's not that bad. It's 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 interesting, and it goes in directions that the other films don't really go. Um, and if you're already a fan of the franchise, like they did things I thought were kind of interesting, and like the opening. There's sort of that um, famous John Carpenter font that he uses for all the Halloween movies. Um, like the original Halloween films, they, the font is, I, I believe it's called ITC Serif Gothic. Probably goes by other names. And then the other uh, John Carpenter films, they uh, like uh, Starman and The Thing. There's a font called, called Albertus, but I mean... They used more of a font that was more akin to uh, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch in this, which I thought was an interesting choice. 
And it was weird, like the way the opening titles were with that particular font. It had like a blue background too. It looked like it was, I don't know if it was like a filter or what, but it looked like it, it had a grainy film look to it. And I think that was sort of like signaling to the audience like, oh, this is a Halloween film, but it's also kind of like going to stray away from some of the Halloween mythology and and kind of be something else, which I appreciate. And like I said earlier, like I, I felt kind of little twinges of uh, Christine, also a John Carpenter film, a little bit of Lost Boys and... You know, but mixed with like the Halloween kind of world. And I thought it was, you know, I thought that was interesting to add that detail to it. And, but, you know, I definitely, I recommend Halloween Ends. I thought it was um, better than average. Hol- uh, the new Hellraiser, don't really recommend it. Um, you know, if you're, like, younger and you're like, oh, Hellraiser, like, this is the Hellraiser of my generation. Like, yeah, go ahead and watch it. Get some enjoyment out of it. I, I don't I don't care. But <laughs> personally, I I saw the, the new Hellraiser a couple of times, and I just was like, uh, not really into it. But Halloween ends, it's fine. So to wrap up this show... I, uh, most, uh, recently, my most recent, uh, Patreon episode, rather, I talked about the, uh, the sequel to Terrifier, which is Terrifier 2, the Damien Leone film, and, um, that is on my most recent Patreon episode, but on that episode, I also, uh, mentioned a, just list of 10 horror films that I really enjoy or horror related films that um, just from talking to people they may or may not have seen even if they are into horror and um, a lot of these films are not too straight off the path like they're mostly movies that you could watch you know you can watch them with your kids um, you know, maybe if they're over the age of like, I don't know, over the age of five, <laughs> you can watch these with your kids, um, or watch them on a date, or if you're just into horror films and, you know, just from people I've talked to, at least they're like, when I talk about these films, uh, a lot of people haven't seen them, but I was like, Oh, you got to check it out. It's very approachable. All these movies I feel are like fairly approachable and they're very specific in their genre where I'm like, you know, if you like, you know, if you like zombie films, check out this film. Or if you like vampire films, check out this film. Or if you haven't seen the sequel to this movie, check it out. Like, I feel like these aren't, it's not like I'm recommending the, you know, uh, the August underground or something like that, or, you know, uh, cannibal Ferox (laughs) or martyrs or something like that. Like none of these are too extreme. And if you're already a horror fan, you might know, some or all of these films, but um, I just I just found that this list of films, sort of in general, um, even people who like kind of bigger mainstream horror franchises, they haven't seen these. And if you are one of those people, um, or you know, check out some of these films. Okay, so here's um, and 
I just put them as, you know, I, there's just 10. They're not in any particular order. Um, they're just movies that I enjoy. And uh, you know, I watch during October, you know, almost every October or, and throughout the year because I watch horror movies all year long. But uh, here's that list. Um, at number 10, we have a... We have a film called, from 1972 called Children Shouldn't Play with the Dead Things, directed by the great Bob Clark. You'll know Bob Clark. He directed Black Christmas, which, depending on who you talk to, consider uh, Black Christmas to be like the first slasher film. Uh, he also did A Christmas Story, the great Christmas story that's played on repeat on TBS, on cable every single year. He also did Porky's. Bob Clark's great, but he did this film, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, and um, it's basically a zombie movie, you know, a um, a bunch of, like, weirdo, hippie, beatnik kids go into the cemetery and dig up a body, they fuck around with elements they shouldn't be fucking around with, and then people come up from the grave, and it becomes a, a zombie movie, and, um... I don't know. It's not a horror movie that, or a zombie movie rather, that I, I feel even like zombie fans, a lot of zombie fans haven't seen, at least ones that I've talked to. You know, like everyone's seen, uh, you know, Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead, 28 Days Later, 21, 28 Weeks Later. Um, they may have even seen Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead, um, you know, but they haven't seen Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things. And, you know, I think it's a interesting, interesting low budget um, movie, and um, you know, if you feel like you've seen everything there is to do with zombies, um, check out uh, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things. You know, I, I I think it's interesting, and that's at number ten. Uh, number nine is a movie called Hacko Lantern. Just in the past, um, you know few years or so um this movie has received some lovely blu-ray releases and it's probably streaming somewhere i would imagine um hack o lantern from 1988 and it's got all kinds of fun 80s shit in there it's got like satanic rituals and heavy metal and um takes place during halloween and it's fun and it's uh and it's uh, it stars uh, High Pike, who you'll know as uh, Raffi uh, from Blade Runner. He's the guy that uh, Harrison Ford talks to in the bar. He buys him a drink. He buys him a drink filled with mealworms. <laughs> but but he's the one who tells uh, Harrison Ford's uh, character Deckard where he can find. Um, what was it? The uh, the guy who makes artificial snakes. I don't know. Uh, if you if you haven't seen Blade Runner, um, you should watch Blade Runner. It's one of my favorite films of all time. It's amazing. It's fucking awesome. Um, I would even recommend Blade Runner for Halloween season. <laughs> it's, it's fucking great. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, Hack a Lantern. I think it's fun. It's it's um, one of the more fun kind of campy 80s horror movies um it's not trying to be too silly but uh it's it's good and it's good with a group of people so check that out that's hack a lantern 
Um, number eight is a film from 1978 called Magic, and it's starring Anthony Hopkins, and this is before he was in uh, David Lynch's Elephant Man, and this was way before he was Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. And um, it's an interesting film about a... Anthony Hopkins is basically a stage um, uh, comedian, but he has a ventriloquist dummy with him. And then a bunch of people in his world um, end up dead. And the mystery is, is Anthony Hopkins a crazy murderer or is it his ventriloquist dummy killing people? Mm. You don't know. The only way you can know is if you watch the film Magic. Uh, star-studded cast, Anthony Hopkins and Margaret and Burgess Meredith, as you will know as the Joker from, not the Joker, (laughs) the Penguin from the 1966 Batman television show. Uh, And obviously he's Mickey from from the Rocky films. But yes, that is number eight. That is magic. Uh, Number seven is... The Exorcist 3, which um, is kind of building a little bit of a cult following just sort of in modern times. And it's a good example of a good sequel to a very popular film, The Exorcist. Exorcist 2 was kind of whatever, and then Exorcist 3 was brilliant. It was uh, directed by the director of, oh, I'm sorry, the writer of The Exorcist book, uh, William Peter Blatty, uh, Blatty. So, for a guy who's only has like you know, I don't, I don't think he has too many um, directing credits. He has a film with a uh, starring Stacy Keach called The Ninth Configuration, and then um, The Exorcist, The Exorcist Three, which I think is a fucking fantastic film. It's one of my probably one of my favorite horror movies of all time. But yeah, check out Exorcist Three. It's fantastic. I watch it every Halloween season. And then number six, uh, sort of connected to uh, Exorcist 3, is a film called My Friend Dahmer, which was based on a graphic novel called My Friend Dahmer, written by a guy named Durf Beckdurf, who actually went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer in Ohio. And it's an auto, it's well, it's an autobiography and of sorts where Durf Beckdurf actually knew Jeffrey Dahmer and was friends with him. And he did the graphic novel, and then that got adapted into a film called My Friend Dahmer. And if you've seen the Netflix Dahmer uh, series, Dahmer, was it was it Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story? It's got a terrible title, but um, yeah, that's... Uh, uh, you, if you saw the Netflix Dahmer story, you know that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie is uh, The Exorcist 3, so... <laughs> There you go. That's a nice companion piece. It's a nice prequel to the Dahmer Netflix series. So go ahead and uh, check that out at your leisure. And um, that's number six. Number five is probably my favorite David Fincher film and probably the greatest film about a serial killer ever made, and that is Zodiac. Uh, Unbelievably good film and... um, uh, based on the book uh, written by kind of based on the book uh, <laughs> written by Robert Graysmith 
and I actually bought that book, uh, that Zodiac book in a, in, in, uh, at, at SFO at the airport in San Francisco, like when I was like 19 or 20, but uh, interesting book. Um, and his, uh, Robert Graysmith's character is played by Jake Gyllenhaal in the film and Robert Downey Jr.'s in it. And, uh, fucking what's his face? Fucking the incredible Hulk, uh, uh, Mark Ruffalo, a bunch of other people in the fucking movie. Great, great fucking movie. Zodiac is the shit. Um, it's one of those movies I definitely watch every single year, at least once. I can't recommend that movie more. Check that out. Zodiac. It's great with, you know, it's great to watch with anybody, you know, watch with your friends, your family. It's fun as fuck. If you're on an airplane, <laughs> if you're just bored, if you're sitting around handing out Halloween candy on Halloween and um, you're just sitting around the house, put on Zodiac in the background. It's fucking fantastic. That's a number five. Number four is a lovely vampire film uh, by Jim Jarmusch called Only Lovers Left Alive, starring Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. And again, I think, uh, I mean, for I love the vampire genre because there's so many different ways you can go with it that are great. You can go action. You can go, you know, you can go into the past. You can go into the present. You can even go into the future if you wanted to. You can be vi- very violent with it or you can be very subdued like this movie. And I love Only Lovers Left Alive. It's a very interesting uh, vampire film. And it's not gory and stupid or anything it's very clever and uh it's oddly relaxing which i think can be said about a lot of jim jarmusch films his films are very everyone's very laid back and chill but yeah that's at number four number three is a film called visiting hours starring uh the great michael ironside and uh and and uh William Shatner. <laughs> um yeah, it's a uh it's a nineteen eighty two film, also went by the uh the title The Fright. And it's basically this woman gets attacked in her home by this murderer played by Michael Ironsize and she um survives the attack and then Michael Ironsize finds out that she's still alive and then goes to the hospital and tries to kill her. And, um, I don't know, it's one of those horror movies that kind of goes under the radar, I think. And, uh, I would say it's, you know, kind of a, it's above average. There's a lot of average fucking eighties horror movies, but, um, I, I like visiting hours and, um, yeah, check it out. If you're kind of burnt out and it's kind of seen every run of the mill eighties horror movie, like uh, visiting hours should be a, an interesting departure and it takes place in a hospital. So if you are, and, uh, actually a, f- a fair chunk of, uh, Exodus three takes place in a hospital, which I think is a great setting for horror films. And so does, ha- uh, Halloween two is also set in a hospital. So it's a good devil feature right there. Watch Halloween two, or if you're feeling crazy, you want a marathon watch Halloween one, Halloween two, and then watch visiting hours. That that's a good, uh, it's a good night of films. Also, Visiting Hours came out the same week uh, I was born. This came out May 28th, 1982. I was born May 23rd, 1982. But, um, yeah, that is at number four. That's Visiting Hours. 
I'm sorry, number three. That's number three, Visiting Hours. And number two is a film, uh, well, speaking of the you know, Halloween franchise, uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which starred the great Tom Atkinson, who was sort of a regular in John Carpenter films, was in a film called Night of the Creeps from 1986. And um, it's an interesting take. It's sort of like half body snatcher movie, half zombie film. But the movie is, uh, it's got some laughs in there, but it's got like fun makeup effects and, you know, um, it's got slasher film vibes to it. And it's really fun. And if you collect physical media, there's been some really nice releases of Night of the Creeps. In the past few years, I, th- I think Scream Factory may have done one as well. I'm pretty sure. But yeah, uh, Night of the Creeps. It's 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 a fun another fun film to kind of watch with uh, with friends during the Halloween season. Have some popcorn, eat some candy, curl up on the couch, and 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 watch Night of the Creeps with the great Tom Atkinson. Uh, you know what? A, a good double feature is you can watch Night of the Creeps and Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. Get a whole, get yourself a whole bunch of Tom Atkinson in one night. Um, that is at number two, and then at number one is a George Romero film that is actually not a zombie movie, and that would be a film from 1977 called Martin. It was a low-budget film. Directed by George Romero and starring John Amplis and and also Tom Savini's in the film as well. The famous makeup artist Tom Savini. And um, well, I think Martin technically came out in 76. Anyways, that didn't matter. It's a it's a very interesting vampire story. And it kind of and I and I'm I wonder if it was sort of a budgetary thing. I'm not exactly sure, but they sort of remove all of the tropes of the vampire genre, like turning into a bat and, you know, an aversion to garlic and sunlight and, um, you know, crosses and all that shit. They sort of remove all of that. And it's kind of a, a character study about a young man who you're sort of like, is he really a vampire or is he mentally ill? You're not really sure. Um, I mean, I guess you'll have to watch the movie to find out, but wonderful, wonderful film. If you can actually find a physical copy, I would say definitely get a physical copy just for prosperity. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was in that era of, you know, George Romero was, you know, he was pumping out all kinds of stuff around that time. You know, he was, uh, you know, the crazies and night writers and, you know, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead and all this stuff. And Martin was in that little was in that little time frame and I definitely recommend it. It's it's probably my favorite vampire movie of all time. So there you go. There's a nice top ten list that um this was a list that I I was from my Patreon, my most recent Patreon episode. And just so you know, if you go to patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory, you can find more Skeleton Factory episodes. Um, a lot of those episodes, I actually have guests. I have uh, some of the lovely ladies from the All My Demons podcast. Check them out. They are on Instagram at All My Demons Pod and All My Demons on the. You can find them on Spotify and 
uh, you know, wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> but um, they're not a movie podcast, but they're still a good podcast. It's funny. Um, but they've appeared on um, a few of my uh, Patreon episodes. Again, that's at uh, patreon.com forward slash, forward slash skeleton factory. So if you go there, you could um, support the show. And just to make things fair, um, I do posts. I'll post a show and it will be available to patrons only for one week. And then after one week, I will make every episode for free. And that's for the audio episodes. So that where are you going to get a better deal than that? That's very fair. So um, again, let me just run through that list one last time for you so you can put it on your movie watching list. Okay. We have number 10, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Number 9, hack lantern Number 8, Magic. Uh, number 7, Exorcist 3. Number 6, My Friend Dahmer. Number 5, Zodiac. Number 4, Only Lovers Left Alive. Number 3, Visiting Hours. Number 2, Night of the Creeps. And number 1, Martin. Okay, everybody. This concludes our show. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening um, you can find me on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. I'm also on Twitter at SF podcast, ATX. And again, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory. And if you uh, need to contact me, you can do so on any one of those platforms. If you have any requests, movies you think I should be reviewing or talk about, or if you just want to ask me a question, feel free to reach out. Okay, everybody. Well, I hope that your October has been going well. I hope you've been going to pumpkin patches and haunted houses and eating candy and getting ready to go to a uh, Halloween party or two. Okay? I will catch you all in the next one. Have a lovely evening. Bye-bye. <laughs>